0: Good morning, church. My name is Howard Jarrell. I've been a member here for 32 years. I serve on the parking team, the deacons, and have been a member of the nominating committee several times. Ryan asked me to share with you my prayer practices and how I connect with God. My prayer practice is a bit different from most. After my workday, I get into my bicycling gear and as I call it, Cycle to the cross. I cycle over here to WCPC, spend time looking at the cross atop the sanctuary. There are times when it is clear and times when it is cloudy. There have been times when others join me. There have been many times when I see the warmth of God's love. And also times when I see the splendor of his majesty. I just talk with God and express thanks for the blessings he bestows onto me. And if things are a bit tough and we all have those days, I ask for perseverance and guidance. I truly feel and believe he hears me. This is my prayer practice and one way I connect with God. And now for today's scripture reading. From Acts 28, 1 through 10. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it to the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fashioned itself onto his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess of justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up and suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happened to him they took they changed their minds and said he was a god there was an estate nearby that belonged to pubulus the chief officer of the island he welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days his father was sick in bed and suffered from fever and dysentery paul went to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him, and he was healed. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us many ways, and when we were ready to sail, furnished us with the supplies we needed. This ends the reading of God's word for today. Thanks
1: be to God. Well, Howard, uh, where, wherever you might be, thank you for um, sharing that prayer practice with us. Many of our staff have seen Howard out after work uh, praying at the cross, and it's quite beautiful. And if I haven't met you, I want to just say hello. I'm Bart Garrett, the lead pastor here. We're delighted to have you in our midst, and I want to join Devana in thanking uh, so many of you this weekend for Uh, The opportunity we have as a church to meet in a country where we are uh, granted that privilege and that freedom, so thank you. And also, Devana, thank you for leading us in that prayer. We bring um, some deep and conflicted emotions uh, into the worship service today, which I'll also say more about as we talk about uh, prayers of healing in a few moments. But Uh, Just last week, I uh, was in a conversation with someone who was asking me about a mutual friend, and I was thinking about that friend and how uh, super tight uh, our relationship was, but then it occurred to me, um, I haven't really talked to this guy in three plus years, and if I were to honestly give a report to my other friend, it would be a protracted report. It would be the kids three years ago, my past impressions, the job that this guy used to have, and I wonder if some of us would think about our relationship with God that way. We might say we're super tight, we're really close, but if we're honest, um, maybe God is now a long-lost pal or just the neighbor that lives down the street. And that's part of why we've been engaging this four-month-long sermon series, which we're concluding today today, taking all 16 prayers of the early church in the book of Acts and asking God to do two things in our lives, which we've been saying week in and week out. One of them is to build an abiding personal connection with God so that God isn't just a hallmate in your life, but you have this abiding, intimate friendship. And Devana mentioned, I've been praying um, often that, that 60 of us would have a newly cultivated, a robust prayer life. And I put in my notes at this point uh, a conversation, two conversations I had had two weeks ago, and then I took it out of my notes, and then I put it in my notes, and I thought this could really be distracting, but it seems so practical. So I'm just going to throw it in there and see what happens um, because I think prayer is practical. So a couple weeks ago, I speak with someone. Last week, I speak with someone. And in both of those conversations, uh, race... Racism came up. Critical race theory came up. Intersectionality came up. And one of these particular people was kind of stuck in the echo chamber of the radical right, and the other was sort of stuck in the echo chamber of the fringe left. And it was occurring to me, in talking to both, just how hopeless each one felt. And the only narrative that gets placed in the far left, and the far right, is often attached to this uh, ecosystem of tweets and articles and podcasts that gets reinforced, It becomes the wallpaper of our life. And I thought to myself in leaving both conversations where both people, neither one goes to this church, so you need to figure it out, uh, where both people were feeling like, I am depressed, And lonely and isolated and afraid I thought to myself you know prayer could be such an infusion of God's perspective in the midst of a complicated world and that's what we're after here that you would have this deep and abiding enriching prayer conversation with God through the series and then secondly we've been saying that collectively we would be a church that takes prayer seriously as we thought about this series months ago our staff got together and we said to one another you know what we're actually growing as a church, and we don't want to grow just to grow. We could care less about that. We want to grow in a way that is allowing our community to see us as a church, as I said last week, that loves God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and that loves our neighbors just as we love ourselves. And what sutures those commissions together, I think, is prayer. So that's why we've been looking at the early church and their life of prayer in the book of Acts. And as I said, we turn to the last prayer in the book of Acts today, the 16th one in Acts chapter 28. And I have to back up to the halfway point for just a second. If we could move back to Acts chapter 9, you might remember we talked about other healing prayers with Ananias and Tabitha, and I didn't call those prayers prayers of healing. I called them prayers of resurrection, so I could reserve that title prayers of healing for today. But just to confuse you a little bit, I actually think this story is as much about resurrection as that story was And so we'll see how that happens in the retelling of this account. And there's a map behind me that might help you out for just a little bit. We've talked about Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament by way of letters to the early churches. His ambition is to take the good news all the way to Rome, the most powerful political city on the map Paul was born in Rome. He had spent 27 years planting churches in the eastern part of the empire. And Paul has taken this long journey on a boat to make it back to Rome. And all of a sudden, these last two chapters read like the excerpt of a novel. Because Paul and his um, shipmates endure this storm they're shipwrecked for two weeks, and then we have this curious story about the snake. If I were naming these last two chapters, I might call it something like the storm the shipwreck, and the serpent. And we're not sure if it's a tragic comedy or a comedic tragedy. In fact, uh, this is a, a seemingly overstylized account of Paul's last couple weeks before he makes it to Rome. It's this uh, epic saga that sounds like the tragic hero on the sea. So if you're into literature, maybe that's Sinbad the sailor or it's Odysseus. And I tell you this because when I was in college, I took a class my freshman year called The Bible as Literature, and all of a sudden I became awash with some doubt and some suspicion and some skepticism, and I started asking the question, can any of this Bible story be true? And we have some of us we're sending out into college in the next couple months, we have some of us that are home from college, and the question often is asked, is the Bible God's word? Yes or no? And I'm going to be teaching in August in our middle hour, uh, three weeks on perhaps the more significant question underneath that question, how is the Bible God's Word? Did, God, did God's Word just fall out of the sky in a, in a leather-bound casing with a little scarlet bookmark and it opened to us in a way that was like, uh, as has been said, God's love letter? Well, No. In fact, when God's Word is intended to be taken literally, it means taken as literature, what our theologians would call the organic, plenary inspiration of Scripture, which if that bores you, let me just say it this way. The theologians are saying that Scripture is every word eternally relevant and historically particular eternally relevant and historically particular in that it does involve literary genre. You have micro-genres that show up, like prose and poetry. You have macro-genres that show up, like apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, like all of these epistles, the letters that Paul writes, and like this story, which is often called a historical theological narrative or a theological historical narrative, Either one is not to suggest that this is mere allegory or metaphor. It is to suggest that this account did happen, but as Luke is writing it, he is writing it with a very particular framework, emphasis, focus, intent. Why am I boring you with these details this morning? Because we'll see, if our eyes will allow us to see, that this story is all about resurrection. In fact, Acts 27 and 28 stylized in this particular way as it is reporting these historical facts maps to Luke's version of the Passion Week. So if you don't know much about Scripture, Luke has written the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus. He's now turned to write the Book of Acts, the story of the church. And in the accounting, that last week of the life of Jesus, the Passion Week, we have a mapping to this story right here. Acts 27 shows up a bit like the crucifixion narrative. It's this shocking story of beatings much like uh, Jesus endured. And then Acts 28, we have this resurrection narrative. We have Paul who, after he's been shipwrecked, gets to this island, Malta, builds a little fire because they're cold on the beach, and all of a sudden a viper attaches to his hand. And what does he do? He shakes it off, and maybe we laugh a little bit because it feels like a humorous story that Paul's made it all the way to here, and now this little snake is going to get them. And then all of these crazy things start happening, just as they did on the third day. People are healed. People are resurrected. And if you are a first century Jew hearing this story and you hear about the snake, you would immediately hearken back to that story in the garden with Adam and Eve and the serpent who was offering this godlike autonomy that Adam and Eve could live a life without God. In fact, God would get in the way of the life that they wanted to lead. You'd hear about uh, the curse that God placed on that serpent but though he would strike their heel, one would come who would crush his head. If you were a first century Jew and you were hearing the scroll of Acts being read over you, you'd hearken back to that story of the wilderness wanderings. Remember when the people of God were bitten by the snakes and Moses puts the snake on the staff and some of you can immediately think about all the images in our medical community of of a snake on a staff and they would get bitten but they would look to that staff with the snake atop on it and they would be healed. And then you think of Jesus and what Jesus said in Luke's gospel that he would have to be lifted up. The Son of Man would be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness so people could look upon him and be healed. In other words, the serum for the venom of this sinful turning away from God would be the redeeming blood of of Christ. See, this Acts 27 and 28 is actually a crucifixion and a resurrection story. N.T. Wright, um, who has a great little commentary on this book, says it this way in the quotes behind me. He says, Acts 28 sets the narrative up for the final voyage and the theology for its full meaning. The sea and the snake have done their worst and are overcome. New creation is happening and the powers of evil cannot stop it. Paul may arrive in Rome a more bedraggled figure than he would have liked But the gospel which he brings is flourishing and nobody can stop it because the resurrection of Jesus presented possibility of resurrection for all people and for everything. So then we get to this place in this resurrection account in verses 8 and 9 where um, this father of, of Plubius is sick and what does Paul do? He lays hands on him, he prays for him. And he's healed. And it's very sad to me that plenty of churches, when it comes to prayers of healing, stop right there, don't they? They say, oh, we're going to have a healing service. And if you come, and if you have more faith, if you pray more fervently, if you clean up your life, if you do just a little bit better, then you or your loved one will be healed. Name it, claim it, frame it, tame it, blame it. Just have more faith. But you see, I've pastored people with fragile faith, with one foot out the door faith, with holding on by a thread faith. I've been with people who've prayed for their mom to be healed and their dad to be healed or their child to be healed. And maybe they were even suspicious of something like that happening, but they were desperate and they prayed anyway and God still didn't answer their prayer. And if that's you, if you've prayed a prayer for healing, that means you've suffered. And I want to say, I'm sorry. And if you have prayed a prayer for healing and the church has cajoled you to just have more faith or to live better or to be cleaner. Let me say on behalf of the church and those ministers, forgive her. Forgive us. So what I'd like to do in our last few minutes is I'd like to hearken back to that prayer of resurrection that I taught us in Acts chapter nine because I haven't been able to better it over the last four or five weeks and I think it's connected to this prayer of healing as well and and I want to define it for you again on the screen. What are these prayers of resurrection healing? And I suggested there in Acts nine and I'd suggest here that these prayers do three things. They acknowledge the brokenness of this world, the beauty of the world to come and the miracles in between. Prayers of resurrection healing do three things. They acknowledge the brokenness of this world, the beauty of the world that is to come, and the miracles in between. And so I want to look at each for just a moment before we come to the table. Firstly, the brokenness of this world. You know, as Devana said earlier, over the past two weeks, we've prayed over and cried over heartbreaking tragedies. There are people in our midst who even have a reverberating pain as a person of color because they experience what happened in Buffalo and they experience others saying, well, well, racism is over. Racism is, is so 1960s. All of that screams broken world, broken world. And yet, Progressivism, and I'm not using it in the political terms, I'm using it in the philosoph- philosophical terms. Progressivism continues to tell us that everything is getting better. And humanism, as in anthropology, continues to tell us that everyone is getting better. But when might we begin to take it into account that if we have turned away from God, then we've turned inward upon ourselves, then we've turned against one another? And resurrection healing prayer names this. It's the sober minded truth. I am messed up. This world is messed up. And sometimes we see no rhyme or reason to who bears the brunt of that suffering. It seems illogical, it seems unjust. We assume this notion of of one to one correlation with morality and well being. So, I've lived a good life, good stuff should happen to me. You've lived a bad life, bad stuff should happen to you. Did you catch it in this very story? The Maltese people are no different. The snake bites Paul. What do they say? Paul's evil. He's a murderer. He's bad. The venom doesn't bother Paul. What do they say? He's a god. Let's worship him. We smirk a bit, right? In such a broken world, they attach their quest for control on this worship of these gods. The largest buildings on Malta, if you go there today, what are they? They're temples and shrines to the gods. Yet our largest buildings, what are they? Hospitals, government agencies, and stadiums. Because in a broken, messed up world, we're after the same kind of control, aren't we? We just assume it comes from healthcare policy and prevention or government intervention and legislation or we simply escape the broken world altogether and we go to the concert or the sports game at the stadium. But a prayer of resurrection healing says no, no, no. This is a broken world. I'm a broken person. I've got to name this. But it doesn't stop there. It also prays us toward the beauty of the world to come and that's a picture in verses 7 through 10. I'll read it again. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home, and he showed us generous hospitality for three days. Again, don't miss the stylization, three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. I I often talk about Christianity as Uh, not the Texas two-step, but the gospel three-step, grace, gratitude, generosity. It's all here. These, These gracious healings, this gratitude fest where they're saying thank you, this generous hospitality where they're supplied for their every need. And often the sheer pain of just how broken the world is, often the encroaching clouds that obscure any notion that hope is at work, what do they do? They disable us from seeing. They distort our view, but there's perspective needed here in this story. I use this analogy in that prayer in Acts 9, and so many of you mentioned it to me. In case you weren't here, I'd use it again. It's almost like taking a string and wrapping it around the equator of our world, 273 times, and then taking a number two pencil and sharpening it to the finest tip, and then placing that little number two pencil on that frayed edge of that string and making just a little bitty dot, which would represent this life and the brokenness in this world. Yet the 273 times that string stretches around our equator is the representation of that life to come. No aging, no dying, no losing, no grieving, no mass shootings, no war, no racism, no pain. Relationships that were riddled with resentfulness in this life become abiding friendships in the next one. And this is not an eject button. This is not wishful thinking. Praying this way grounds our longings in resurrection, hope. And that lastly becomes the fertile ground for the miracles in between the broken world and the beautiful world to come. We offhandedly pass that world word around, right? We call it the miracle drug, or we say things like, it's a miracle that she would go out with you, right? But we remain deeply suspicious of miracles. We say, well, well, Jesus didn't walk on the water. It, it just happened to be really cold that day, you know. Some of you will get that when you're eating pancakes later. But there are a barrel of questions around miracles. What's a miracle? Can we believe in miracles? How frequently do miracles happen? How do we know when we experience Miracles. There are lots of questions about miracles and I, and I addressed this in a past sermon in the series and, and you can go back and watch it. But suffice it to say here, with any miracle story, with any miracle story like this one in scripture, with any miracle story in your life, we have to say this. If I believed Jesus was resurrected from the dead, then anything is possible. And as a pastor, I've had stories told to me. I've experienced A dozen or so myself, where I look at something and I say, there's really no other way to describe this other than a healing, a miracle, an intervention, a resurrection reality. I'd summarize all this by quoting Joni Erickson Tata when, uh, if you know her story, in a diving accident, she became a quadriplegic and has ministered to many who are bruised and broken and suffering, and in her ministry, this is what she says, when we pray for healing— we practice radical openness to God's future for us. When we pray for healing, we practice radical openness to God's future for us. So as I conclude this series and conclude this sermon and we come to this table, let me just apply that to to two different folks in the room this morning. Um, There are some of you in the room, maybe you're online, maybe you're outside, And we say to you every week, we're so glad you're here. And maybe you feel like you're starting to belong, but you're not sure you believe. And we keep saying, please explore this faith alongside of us. It it is a great gift that you would trust us with your faith. But this could be a moment for you to simply come to God through the work of Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time. You see, that is a a resurrection miracle. We believe that Jesus takes hearts that are dead and pumps them with new life. And maybe fear has kept you away, maybe doubt that has become deep suspicion or cynicism has kept you away. Maybe guilt over an addiction has kept you away. Maybe you're living a very distorted and malformed life, but you keep shaping the narrative to pretend it's all God's fault. I I don't know. Maybe you're majoring on the minors of the Christian faith. But would you consider if Jesus is raised from the dead, anything is possible. Would you come back to God? Would you come to God? And with Jesus... You can come empty-handed. The the only thing you have to give is in. And then for the, the rest of us, maybe we have worn out prayers in our lives that we've prayed for weeks or months or years and we've just stopped praying them. My challenge and encouragement to you is maybe you pick up that prayer and you start praying it again. And that doesn't mean that this time God will perform a miracle. Maybe God will. We're not sure. We don't know. But perhaps what it does mean is there's more work to be done in that situation, in that relationship. Maybe it's naming brokenness. Maybe it's it's claiming and hoping for beauty. When we pray for healing, we practice radical openness to God's future for us. Would you pray with me as we come to the table? God, it's difficult and delicate to talk about matters of healing because so often um, the people we love uh, aren't necessarily healed in the ways that we would hope and expect or anticipate. God, we suture our our own hearts to um, all of these broken families in buffalo and uvalde and ukraine and and so many other spaces in our broken world and we just imagine their pleas for healing their their questions of, of why Jesus, this table um, doesn't answer all of those questions, but um, it certainly suggests that you are not absent, that you intervened and gave of your very uh, life to give us the cleansing, the hope, perhaps the healing, the forgiveness, the courage that we need to carry forward in a broken world, as we anticipate the beauty of the world which is to come, uh, would you bolster our faith in this moment at this table? It's in your name we pray. Amen.